How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. Today's guest is Dr. Julia DeGangi, who is a neuropsychologist who shows you how to expand the power of your nervous system to hold more emotional voltage. As a brain scientist, Dr. Julia knows that your nervous system is your portal to power. She brings tremendous expertise and decades of applied experience serving leaders at the highest level of power, including the White House, top leadership at global companies and special forces. Having worked with leaders to endure some of the highest stakes, highest stress situations on the planet, Dr. Julia shows us what it takes to unlock new dimensions of your emotional power, particularly in times of uncertainty. I have no doubt that you will walk away with a lot of great leadership tips as you listen to our discussion. Dr. Julia, welcome to the Leadership Jam session. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. I'm excited for the conversation. I'm excited as well. So are you ready to jam? I am ready to jam. I am excited about this topic because this is a hot topic out there with emotional intelligence and leadership. Uh, it's been a hot topic for many years. So I'd love to get your thoughts and perspective on how leadership relates to emotional intelligence. I am thrilled to be talking about this. So I am a neuropsychologist, which means I'm a clinical psychologist with specialized expertise in the brain. And when I think about my work, I really think about my work in sort of three pillars. So I think about your brain, I think about your leadership, and I think about your emotional intelligence. Now, obviously, like in our careers, our thinking about our work evolves. And there's so much stuff these days about leadership in uncertain times, right? Yeah. So it's uncertain. It's uncertain. It's still uncertain. What are we going to do about all this uncertainty? My thinking has evolved so much that I'm going to say something pretty bold. I actually think that leadership and emotional intelligence are synonyms. Okay. So what I mean by this is the human brain hates uncertainty. In fact, to, to make this really clear, one thing I always say is there's only one emotion that all people universally hate. So I certainly work with people who are very comfortable being angry. angry. Anger can feel like a very powerful emotion. You know, you hear a lot about like artists or people who love that feeling of melancholy and nostalgia. So there's a, there's a range in terms of how people feel about their feelings. But universally, people hate being confused. And the reason people hate being confused is the brain is most fundamentally a pattern detection machine, okay? So your brain likes to go apple, 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 banana, banana, banana. Um, this is going to work out. This is going to work out. This is going to work out. These people like me. These people like me. These people like me. These people don't like me. These people don't like me. These people don't like me. And if you think about it from a survival not a thriving perspective, but a surviving perspective. It's very adaptive. So the problem with uncertainty, the problem with confusion is that your pattern detector does not know how to close the pattern. It doesn't know how to close the proverbial loop. This is why uncertainty drives everyone crazy. I'll tell you really quickly about an experiment that lots of scientists, including um, in my own lab, people used to run is you would put people in a room with an electrical shock machine. And I've had this shock administered to me and it's absolutely painful. And you'd have two conditions. You'd have one condition where the machine would count down five, four, three, two, one, and you absolutely would get a shock. And you'd have another condition where you'd, the machine would count down five, four, three, two, one, 
and you may or may not get a shock. In other words, the condition was uncertain. And statistically, people prefer to be in the condition where they are certain they are going to receive physical pain. Now, I think there's plenty of like economists that, you know, and and other people who would call this behavior irrational. I don't think it's irrational at all. I think the brain is communicating something holy to us, which is our experiences of uncertainty are literally painful. And under certain circumstances, emotional pain is more painful than physical pain. When we think about leadership in uncertain times, what that really means is so many of our contextual cues have gone away. So we're not doing client meetings. We're not having coffees. We're not flying across the country. I'm the most extreme. Like we don't even really understand what's going on in our national political system and our global world order. Okay. It's like, Mm -hmm. what the heck is happening? Right. So when all of these contextual cues go away, never is leadership more important because now people can't look at their flight schedule and their coffee dates and our democratic voting processes. So they have their eyes on you as a leader, like they are locked in. Mm -hmm. Now we as a leader are also human. It's not like all the leaders know the actual path forward and the mere mortals, the rest of them, silly as they are, they don't know the right direction. So we as leaders just need to enlighten them. We have no idea what the hell is going on either. So the reason I think leadership and emotional intelligence are synonyms, and I get chills every time I say it, is the measure of my leadership, the measure of my emotional power becomes who I am in my own moments of uncertainty, who I become in the void. Who do I become when I don't know what's going to happen? Who do I become when they're not doing it my way? Who do I become when I don't like the words coming out of your mouth? That is the measure of my leadership. I think that makes a lot of sense. Kind of goes back to the old adage of anybody could, could lead in good times. Right? It's the true test of leadership when things are, are going south. And how do you as a leader rise to the occasion? Which Absolutely. is hard as a leader, because as you said before, we're, we're humans too, going through that. And, and, and how do we rise to it? And because it does impact our employees. Absolutely impacts our employees. And I I could not agree more. I think we do ourselves a disservice sometimes when we use words like it's challenging or it's hard. I think if you really take this to the neurologic level, and we have plenty of like fMRI studies to back stuff like this up, the pain circuits in the brain are getting activated. The brain does not like uncertainty. So we as leaders, it's not just hard for us. I would actually ratchet up the linguistics here and say it's painful. The analog to physical health is so clear, right? No one ever wonders like the way I'm going to get stronger is absolutely never show up at the gym. I got a great plan. I'm just going to avoid physical fitness at all costs. It's going to be amazing. Why then is the link not as clear when it comes to our emotional power? And the reason I was so thrilled to do this podcast with you is I really, really, really in my bones believe that this is the conversation that changes the world. If you really think about it, if the brain is at the helm of our entire consciousness, emotions are the native language of our life. We come out of the womb of our mother speaking only a language of emotion. And if we're really honest about it, we are speaking a language of painful emotion. I I don't know if you have kids yet, but do you have kids? I have twin boys who are 19 going on three. So yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I have little ones. And when they came out, they weren't like, this is amazing. 
I feel so relaxed. It's very pleasant to be here. They were red faced, shrieking and terrified. (laughs) And so isn't it so fascinating that we then spend our whole life trying to avoid, amputate, suffocate negative emotion. The function of the brain is to process pain. It's one of the core functions, right? It's very much about survival and safety. We would never ask the lungs not to breathe or the heart not to beat. And so I think there's such power in this conversation about how do we come back home to the emotional truth of our life? So what I'm hearing you say is from your perspective, emotional intelligence, and correct me if I'm wrong, starts with our own emotions. 100%. Let me give you another analogy and tell me if this lands, because I really want to make sure this is clear. You cannot give what you do not have. You cannot recognize what you do not know. If I came to you and I was like, hey, Rob, I really, really need you to lend me like 50 bucks. I'm super in a pinch. Mm -hmm. And you genuinely wanted to help me, but you really did not have the 50 bucks. Like you didn't know how to access it. You didn't know where it was. You didn't, no matter how much you want to, you cannot give me the 50 bucks. There's all these glorious conversations right now about leaders meeting the emotional life of their employees, right? So you, that's why you're having all these conversations about empathy, inclusion, resilience, emotional agility, authenticity, vulnerability, mm-hmm. and go on and on and on and on, right? But how could I really meet people in that energy if I don't know it? I can't sing a song, I don't know. I can't talk in a language that I don't speak. It's like we've, we've made mental health and we've made emotional intelligence so much more complicated than it needs to be. Like nobody runs around being like, Hey Rob, what's going to happen if I drop this ball? Like, do you, do you think like gravity's going to pull it down? Or like, do you think maybe if I like look the other way, gravity wouldn't, it's so obvious. I, I'm so glad you said that. Cause I do think oftentimes, particularly in leadership, we make things much more complicated than what they need to be. And emotional intelligence is like one of those big, broad buckets that people love to throw around but may not necessarily understand what it truly means or how to simplify it to some extent, mm-hmm. right? And w- what I'm hearing you saying, it's, it's, yes, a lot of people tie in empathy with emotional intelligence, but it first starts with understanding yourself and, and how you might react or how you behave in times of uncertainty, or, or I think I heard you say before, even you know, during emotional pain too, some of the pain points. Absolutely. When I use the term emotional pain, it's a provocative word, right? You know, I think it almost makes you want to kind of recoil. So part of the reason that I use, actually the main reason that I use it is if you think about the brain, I always say it's the most precious real estate on the planet. And it's like less than three pounds from, it's tiny. So the circuits that give rise to any bad feelings in your life, any bad feelings. So You're stressed out because they got your coffee order wrong at Starbucks. You're sitting in traffic. You're furious at your spouse. You're fearful about your kids. You're enraged. You're terrified. You're anxious. Those sensations, like it's interesting. We have a lot of words to describe like different shading, right? But the circuits in the brain that give rise to bad feelings are the circuits in the brain that give rise to bad feelings. It's not like you have a 500 pound brain and that part deals with anxiety and that part deals with stress. So when I talk about emotional pain, I'm talking about any time it feels bad in your body. What I, what that then means is like another word that I think can help people really access this is you want to be a strong, a stronger leader, figure out how to work with your triggers until you ain't triggered anymore. I really think there's this idea of being triggered to brilliance, being triggered to power. So here, let's just take an easy example. 
say I have, I have tons of, I think I'm, I got a, gr- a lot of great ideas. Like, and I really feel called to express my ideas, but I, I can't public speak. I cannot get on a stage. God, I cannot like do a Facebook live. I can't like stream a YouTube, but I really believe that I have all these great ideas. Well, my power is going to be hamstrung. And by power, I, I literally mean, so the, the definition of power is just my ability to have an effect. So my ability to express, my ability to get my message out, my ability to connect to people is hamstrung because my pain, i.e. my anxiety, my uncertainty, my fear of getting on stage is blocking my power. Mm-hmm. Well, what we know about the brain, and this is, this is so powerful because what happens when, when um, people are afraid is your brain wants you to avoid the thing, the very thing that will set you free. We have a copious amount of neuroscientific evidence that says if you want to overcome your anxiety, repeatedly do the thing you are afraid of doing. You're afraid of public speaking, get out there, get out there, get out there, get out there. And this is what I mean about triggered to freedom, triggered to brilliance. Like, is it going to suck at first? Absolutely. But the other thing that's really interesting to me, when I go to the gym and let's say I can only pick up a 10 pound weight and I want to get stronger. So I, the next day I pick up a 20 pound weight or a 15 pound weight, you know how like your, your like bicep will start to shake. No one's ever like, oh my God, this is a disaster. Can someone please call, please just please call 911. I, I need someone to drive me to the hospital because I'm, I, my, my muscle is shaking right now. Mm-hmm. That The shake is the very evidence of my increasing strength. Why is it then? When I go to public speak or I go to have a tough conversation or I go to express myself differently in some capacity in my life and I call it the emotional shake, the emotional shake shows up. I start to wobble. My energy truly starts to wobble. Sometimes my, I lose my voice. Yeah. I feel shaky. My, my hands start sweating. We, we interpret that evidence as evidence of imminent doom. Immediately shut down the effort. And go back to avoiding the emotional shake. Well, I know on a physical health level, I can't get stronger without it. Yeah. So if you could have people understand, like, I have to meet my pain differently. I have to meet my triggers differently. I have to meet my struggle differently. This is how we set the whole world free. I work with a lot of emerging leaders, individuals who want to become, you know, managers of people or who are new to managing. The biggest hurdle this group has to overcome is giving feedback. And I think- You say giving or getting? giving feedback, having the tough conversation, as you just mentioned, I think that exactly relates to what you're talking about, right? It's hard to do. And a lot of individuals really do struggle and avoid giving tough feedback in many cases. So I think that emotional shake that you talked about, that's a great example of that. I mean, look, first of all, if you don't have uh, any issue giving tough feedback, you probably shouldn't be managing in the first place. That's a whole separate story, but uh, I often coached individuals on that over time is how you build the confidence to do. And that's exactly what you're saying, right? You have to do it over and over in order to overcome it, even though it is a pain point. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I love what you're saying. Cause I think it really kind of flips, it flips the goal on its head. So one of the things I talk a lot about is I believe in human intuition for sure. I'm a yoga instructor. I think, you know, to, to have survived as long as humans have survived on the planet, like there is an intuition that is, is very strong. But one of the things that neuroscientific evidence is incredibly clear about is that to overcome our experience of emotional pain, our anxiety, our fear, our stress, et cetera, et cetera, we have to do the counterintuitive. So you can think of your brain as like driving down like the highway of your life. 
and every time, so, and, and it recognizes this highway, but the problem is the highway is like, it just goes in a circle. And after like the fifth billionth time that you've gone around this highway, you're like, okay, like I was built for more. I need to get off this highway. I know everything here. And honestly, it's like not that satisfying. It's a little bit depressing. I'm a little bit bored. I'm a little bit uninspired. Let's go on a new road. But the, the, the pattern detection function of your brain is glorious. I mean, it's, again, I get chills every time I talk about it. So it's, it's amazingly adaptive. Mm. But if I want to do it different, the pull of the pattern is so strong that when I start to go on a new road, I'm going to hit the emotional rumple strip. This is another analog for the emotional shake. And my brain's going to go. Right. Yeah. Now, unless I kind of am trumping the, you know, people love to talk about like the lizard brain or the reptilian mm-hmm. brain or that, like, and I think, yeah, these conversations are part of the way that people do this. When I hit the emotional shake, when I hit the emotional rumple strip, unless I had a conversation like you and I are having, or I'm working with someone, a coach or a mentor or a psychologist or whatever, I'm going to go back on the highway because my brain's that that sensation is going to feel like danger, but I can train myself to make that same sensation that zing, zing, zap, zap, zoink, zoink of your neurons firing to be expansive. I can train myself to see that is me maximizing my potential. I can train myself to feel that feeling like freedom, hope, Mm. strength, but I have to be willing to go through the shake. Yeah. I have to be willing to like persist through the rumple strip. Yeah. I love what you said before. I mean, this, everything we're talking about is, is, you know, using, I forget exactly how you served it up, but using your emotional pain in some ways to kind of set you free. I believe, believe, believe Rob, that our pain is a holy messenger. Let me give you some examples of this. Okay, so there are two types of pain I think people need to be aware of. There's acute pain and there's chronic pain. So I always make a joke, like no one in the history of my career has ever come to see me because they keep getting hit in the face by a two by four. It's like the first time you smack me in the face with a two by four, I'm like, that's just 100% bad. Let's stop. Our situations of chronic pain are an entirely different animal because we're, we have this all pain is bad mentality. If I put my hand on a hot stove and I burn my hand, I'm going to pull my hand off and I'm never going to do that again. But the problem with like, I really want to express myself more powerfully. I want to have more authentic connections. Mm -hmm. I want to have more joy. I want to have more rest. Let me give you a definition of pain that I think will really show you what I mean when I say pain is is a holy messenger. I think this is, I've thought about pain a lot in my life. And this is the most powerful definition I can give you. A enormous, not all of the pain in our life, but an enormous quantity of the pain in your life comes when you divide yourself from yourself. In other words, you want to express yourself more. You keep your mouth shut. There's something that's been on your mind. You really want to have a difficult conversation with somebody. You avoid it. You're really tired. You're really exhausted and you need some rest and rejuvenation. Instead, you overwork, you overgive, you overdeliver, you overaccommodate. You really want to say no, but you say yes. In all of those circumstances, I had divided myself from myself. And in, in the self-division, in the self-abandonment, I'm going to create pain. And it's going to feel like zing, zing, zap, zap, bad. Zing, zing, zap, zap, anxiety. Zing, zing, zap, zap, depression. Zing, zing, zap, zap, you know, inadequacy. 
So every time I want to say no, but I say yes, my, my body's going to react. My brain's going to react. What's that definition of insanity again? You keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Am I going to come into my pain in a new way? In other words, I'm really afraid to express myself. I'm really afraid to hold this boundary. I'm really afraid to finally say no. But that pain is a more powerful pain than this chronic stuck pain that I've been living day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out. So one of the things I always tell my clients, I'm I'm writing a book right now for leaders, is I, I say the goal cannot be to totally eradicate pain. This, this is a reflexive response. It's a fantasy of us all. It's so natural. There's no shame there. But the brain is a pain detection machine. Just like you can't get your lungs to stop breathing, you can't get your brain to stop detecting pain. It's just what it means to be human. I don't know why. We're going to have to have God on the podcast next. But it becomes way more powerful when I say, how can I leave this small suffocating pain and choose the most powerful pain of my life? Do you see how that's how I get up the mountain? I'm using like my hands here. I don't know if your listeners are going to see my hands, but do you see how that then allows me to scale this mountain of emotional power? So you're using your pain as, as power. Yes. Yes. And I always say that emotional pain and emotional power are two sides of the same exact energetic coin. Mm. In other words, I am only as powerful as the weakest point of my pain. If I, if I can talk to everyone except this group of people, well, then that's the limit of my power. If I can give a, a public speech under certain conditions, but God forbid the teleprompter goes out, totally fine, but that's the limit of my power. So I think a lot of people who are called into leadership roles are called because we genuinely care about people and we yeah. want to serve. That then can look like I need to make sure everyone's happy or another term to put it in is I need to make sure everybody agrees. Now, I don't know the type of family that you come from, but obviously our leadership blueprint was formed in our childhoods. That's not a statement of philosophy. It's a statement of neurobiology. The most powerful leadership role on the planet is the parent. So we, we got a lot of coding about what leadership should look like. So I know I, and I know a lot of other people learned that it's really important that you be right. It's really important that everyone in the, agree, in the room think that I'm right. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this, if you really take a powerful lens and you're thinking, how can I strengthen my leadership is I talk a lot about energetic frequencies. So my leadership, then if I need everyone in the room to agree with me, I am constraining my own leadership power. Because what is the likelihood that if there's 50 people in the room, all 50 are going to agree with me? Right. If I can't hold that tension, if I can't hold that pain when 10 people disagree with me, then the upper limit of my power is 40 people. And the other thing is like, if I want to be able to really increase my leadership power, it's like, how can I let it be? Let me say what I need to say. Let me say what I authentically believe. Let me and let me make authentic space for other people to speak from a place of their power. Would you say that if if somebody doesn't agree with me, could that be potentially one of those triggers that you talked about um, and yeah. how I might react to that as a leader? Absolutely. It's really powerful for leaders when they start to really kind of unearth their leadership blueprint. Like, how do I show up today? How was this coded into me? How was this patterned into my pattern detector many years ago? One of the reasons that this is 
so, so accurate is because the parts of the brain that deal with emotion, that deal with satisfaction, that deal with fear, that deal with anxiety, that deal with triggers, they're held in the part of the brain in sort of subcortical regions of the brain. The parts of your brain that control emotions do not keep linear time. They do not understand time. This is why, tell me if this has happened to you, something will happen, you know, you'll get embarrassed or you'll hear a song or you'll smell a certain smell and you'll feel like you're back in high school. You'll feel like you're back in childhood. You'll feel like the thing is happening. People with trauma talk about this a lot all over again. I was working with a leader at a a big tech company and he told this really powerful story. So he had lost several jobs. So he was very, very successful at sort of the highest levels of leadership, but he had a, a pretty combative personality. Mm. And when we started to unpack this, he, you know, he really started to realize in my household from the earliest stage, the way that you got loved was you showed that you were the smartest guy in the room. You showed that you were the smartest guy in the family. And so my family would debate everything. And sometimes, yes, it was enjoyable, but a lot of times it was like, you had to fight to be right, to get your oxygen, to get your attention, to get your affection, to get your, your safety and your worthiness. So if that is this timeless thing that is neurologically encoded into me, in other words, in order to be safe, in order to be worthy, in order to be connected, I have to, I have to be the smartest guy in the room, except now it's not 50 years ago, it's 50 years forward. And there's, and this isn't a family kitchen table. And there's other that, you know, it's a, it's a very special thing for leaders to be able to lead other leaders. Right. Mm. So now he's in, you know, at the sort of top echelons of power and he had to really have this kind of big come to Jesus moment where he's like, I got to change this coding. I got to change this patterning because it keeps flaring up. And it's really, once again, hamstringing my own emotional intelligence and my own emotional power. Cause this is not how I want my leadership to feel. What would you recommend in terms of moving forward, right? How how does one take that step of trying to reprogram or try to approach things differently? Awesome question. So I have a lot to say about this. Let me try to make this as like bite sizes is useful. I would say, let me try to take you to what I call the emotional headwaters. I'm going to try to tell you two things. Remind me that I said two things. Okay. I will try, but I'm usually good for just one thing. Okay. (laughs) I have the memory of a goldfish. So yes, (laughs) I'll try. So because your brain is a pattern detector, it's moving you through your life through these very, very predictable patterns. People love to think that human behavior is so complicated and confusing. It's not. There's absolutely an emotional physics and a behavioral math to this. Okay. So I just told you that the patterns are stored in the brain in a way that are timeless and that were neurologically created in our childhood. So if you think about what happens to the childhood brain, it is mind-blowing. So more than a million neural connections are formed in year zero through three, every second. It's like, you can't even consciously fathom that, right? And if you think about what's happening, so all these all these systems in the brain are just growing at an exponential rate, except linear language. So this is why people, you know, things will happen in childhood that we absolutely have a memory for. We just don't have a linear linguistic. We can't say the one time when I was two and mom and dad were fighting and you know, that doesn't actually happen. What I think is really powerful for leaders to understand is that there is what I call a root pattern 
that gives rise to nearly all of the pain in your life. So I'm going to explain this to you and I'm going to take you through the model of a tree. Okay. okay? Yeah. So a tree has three components, right? It has, I'm sure it has way more. I'm not a botanist. It has the leaves, <laughs> it has the trunk and it has the root system. Yeah. The leaves in this, in this uh, metaphor represent situations. So a lot of times when you get in painful situations in your life, you'll say something like, this person is bothering me. That person's not listening to me. This is so hard. These people are doing that. Those people won't agree. Can you see how it's like every independent situation is like an individual leaf? Mm -hmm. So we try to fix the individual leaf. Now, I just told you I'm not a botanist. And you don't have to be a botanist to know that a good way to fix a sick tree ain't to go leaf by leaf by leaf. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. She's making some sense here. Drop down into the trunk. What's in the trunk? The trunk of the tree is what I call the angry class of emotions. So this is anything that to you feels like anger. Anger, irritation, frustration, agitation, rage, mad, that kind of, that frequency. You following me? Mm -hmm. But anger is always a secondary emotion. It's always a defensive response, right? So the only reason I would get angry is because I'm protecting something I'm afraid of losing. So just think about this in, in your house, for example, right? If someone comes into my home, I get enraged, right? Well, what am I enraged? I'm enraged because are they going to damage my property? Are they going to take my things? And then obviously, worst of all, would they do something to my children? Or So, mm -hmm. so there, there's fear. Fear is always underneath anger, always. It's like mm. math. Okay. I'm not saying we're consciously aware of it every time, but that's right. always what well. So when I start to do this exercise with leaders, I'll go, okay. So the ones who are really brave, and I think there's a lot of emotionally intelligent leaders out there who are willing to do this work. Okay. What are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that this person's going to get mad when I tell them this. I'm afraid that I'm going to get fired. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose this job. I'm afraid that I'm never going to leave this job. But do you hear how even in those examples, I've slipped back up into the leaves. Now I'm going, this person's going to think this, Susie's going to think that, Jimmy's going to think that, Marcus is going to, okay, I'm back in the leaves. Are you with me? Yep. So now we come to the mother fear, the mother fear for us universally. I am inadequate. It is important that people find their own personal brand of misery on this I, this universal energy of I am inadequate. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a couple and we can like talk through them. So mine might be, um, I'm not enough. I'm not, I'm not safe. I can never get what I want. People don't listen to me. I'm not heard. I'm too much. I'm too little. So do you hear how those are all kind of permutations on this, on this root fear of, I am fundamentally inadequate. Oh, I am. Yep. Yep. Okay. I was going to go ahead. Keep going. No, you go. You no, go. I was going to say, is that where then as you keep just ruminating on it, then it turns into anger at times? Absolutely. And yeah. anger, all human emotions are gorgeous. They all serve a function, but just like you don't want to sing a one note song, yeah. you got to make sure there's like variability in your emotional range. So if I'm just like pissed off all the time, which, you know, I do a lot of work with trauma and anger is a very, it's a, it's a very, it can be when, when leverage a very healthy response. So yes, we start to get agitated. It just doesn't feel good in my body. doesn't feel good in my life. 
So you asked me a, a while ago, it was like, what can leaders do? And I said, I was going to tell you two things. Yeah. If I take myself, either take myself through this thought experiment of like emotional power, I work with, with a mentor or coach or something like this. I really get like, okay, what, what are mine? And like, there might be like two or three, but there's not a hundred. So let's say one of mine is I'm not heard. If I, my pattern detector fundamentally believes that I am unhearable, it doesn't matter if there are, there's 7 billion people on the planet or something like this. If there are 14 billion years in front of me, if I fundamentally believe I am unhearable, I will insist, insist that I am unheard. Yep. It's it's the story you're just telling yourself over and over. Right. Yes. It's the pattern and it's the coding. It's the story. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. So my work becomes talk about calling back your power. The work becomes where in my life do I not listen to myself? Take me there. Where do I not hold my boundaries? Where do I overgive? Where do I kiss the ring when I don't want to? Where am I hustling for my worth? And until I clean it up from there, the injury will always bleed. And the truth is, the truth is we love to talk about trust. Why in the world does it make any sense? Like, why would I say I can't trust you when really the deeper wound is I can't trust myself? And isn't leadership about, you made the point, you know, you brilliantly when we started our conversation that like leadership, it's not for the easy times. Like that's Mm -hmm. just like you got lucky and you having a great time. Right. Yeah. So how do I trust myself? In my own moments of confusion, in my own moments of doubt, in my own in my own moments of chaos, you clean that up. It's like your life is a your life is a masterpiece. Right. And no matter where I want people to know, no matter where you are in your journey, you can change it in an instant. I see it happen all the time. And sometimes you have to. I mean, you you know because your people are depending on you. But from what I'm hearing is you first have to actually identify it and come to grips with it. Yeah, because otherwise people will they'll get lost in the morass of the leaves. Right. They'll say, you know, these people are saying that, those people are saying this, those people are doing the other thing. Just to go back to the other story that that you know, because I think it was a great um, example you were talking about the combative leader that identified where this was all coming from, right? Some of the early you know upbringings, and was that that leader able to modify and adjust? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. He did a lot of, you know, we talk about like, I use this term emotional authority. Yeah. I really have this idea of an inner game. He did a tremendous amount of work on his own inner life. Well, it goes like, back to what you were saying before, right? It's, it's, you have to do it over and over to build it. Yes. And do you see how this is a huge shift? Because if I interpret the sensation, the zing, zing, zap, zap as doom, terror, horror, rejection, no human being would be able to endure those things. So when I start to run these experiments, I call them, you know, you got to really experiment in your life. When I really start to say, okay, I'm going to show up at this meeting and no matter what, because you got to like, you got to meet yourself where you're at. So if you're used to talking all the time, sometimes you, you got to set up an experiment where you're going to find success. And sometimes the most successful experiments are the ones that are black and white. So let's say I'm someone who I got to dominate the room all the time. So I'm going to show up at this meeting and no matter what, I'm not going to speak. I will feel in that meeting. And when people really get in, they have the emotional intelligence to really reflect on the, on the sensations in their body. They will say like, 
I wanted to peel the skin off my body. Like, and I'll tell them like, tune in, like what was happening in your throat? Like they'll start to feel their throat is tightening. They'll start to feel their heart is racing. They'll start to get shifty in their chairs, right? Like they just want to get out of the room. They either want to talk or they want to get out of the room. Right. If I continue to interpret that as like, everyone here thinks I'm, I'm dumb. No one takes me seriously. They all think I'm weak. If I allow that thought pattern to take over, I won't be able to hold my power because those things, if they were true, would be terrible. But if I can, can go back to this idea of the emotional shake and it becoming like the actual process by which I get stronger, I, I can soothe myself in my pain. In other words, oh yeah, this, oh man, this, this is, this is awesome. Like I can feel the expansion. Hmm. Oh my God. Like I can tell my life is going to be different when I get to the end of this process. Wow. This really, for the first time ever feels categorically different. Oh my God. I'm realizing how strong my impulse to speak is like, what, who am I going to be when I change this? So you have to be able to meet your, the, the sensations of your own brain and body in a powerful enough way. So you can actually hold the transformation. Yeah. I love the emotional shake. I really do. And it's so true. But the first part is just identifying it and and knowing you're going to have to go through that, which will make you stronger though. The other key here too, is I think as leaders, we sometimes put all this pressure on us that we have to do this. You know, we have to have all the right answers. Like you said before, you know, like, like I want people to agree with me, or at least I, you know, we put that pressure that I have to have all the answers. I need to do this on my own. But in many cases, great leaders know they rely on others whether it's other colleagues, you know, a, a coach, psychologist, whatever the case may be, to help them get through some of their their pain points, to help them get stronger in these areas. Oh, so, so true. So true. Yeah. You know, I say that there are like two competing drives of the brain that both are the cause of every single interpersonal problem on the planet. And are also the balm is like the healing, the healing agent for every single interpersonal relationship on the problem on the planet. Mm-hmm. So these, these two drives is number one, the drive for connection. So we interpersonal neurobiology is a field of study. And all this means is like, we literally regulate our nervous system through the behavior of other people, right? This is obviously most clear in infancy, like the, the rocking of the baby, the nursing of the baby, the bouncing of the baby, the holding of the baby that regulates the infant's nervous system. We now know we have great data that this happens in marital relationships, as I'm sure we all know, mm-hmm. our partners both reg, they soothe us and they dysregulate us. Right. Yeah. And what's starting to be really cool is we're starting to see this stuff. He studied in team environments. So we always knew our coworkers, bless their hearts, you know, we loved them or they drove us crazy. Well, that has to be mediated by my nervous system. Mm. So there's this drive for connection. Like I really want to be connected to you, but the competing drive is the neurobiological drive for choice. Now you can call it choice freedom. You can call it independence. You can call it autonomy. I don't care, but you can see how every, every moment of either interpersonal power, interpersonal pain is when these things come into, into contact with each other. So the conflict is clear, right? I definitely want to be connected with you, Rob. I really want to be connected with you. We're going to be, we're going to make a great team. You just need to do it exactly (laughs) my way. Okay. So 
Here's a page out of my playbook. And I just need you to follow along. Meanwhile, especially people who are our leaders too, they're like, no, 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 Julia, you have it backwards. I really want to be connected with you. You just need to refer to pages 62 through 79 and read your script right here. And we'll have a lovely relationship. So this, this, you can see how these two things compete. When we allow ourselves and we have to choose it for ourselves to access the power of connection. And you gave a great example. It's like right now I have to know myself well enough to know like what work do I really need to do to myself to take myself to the edge of my my, my intrapersonal power? And when do I need to call on the power of relationship and say, I need you to help me. You gave the example, like, I need you to help train me. I need you Mm -hmm. coach, mentor, psychologist. Like I need help getting through this. It's, It's too confusing. I'm too lost. So really when you understand, I always say the, the brain gives us a blueprint. When you really start to see that the brain is, yes, it is the most magnificent machine on the planet. It also has a, has a, a rhythm and the rhythm, maybe the rhythm isn't easy, but the rhythm is simple. Right. I, li- I loved how you said that because it's getting through it is, may not be easy, but the, the, the path, the rhythm, right. Is, is, um, how did you say that again? The, uh, the that rhythm. The brain, yeah. I don't. Yeah, the brain has like a rhythm that I don't think the rhythm is necessarily easy, but I think it's simple. Like it can yeah. tell you what to do. Yeah, I totally agree. I think going through it may be difficult, but when you sit back and look at it, the path might be actually easier to see than, than one thinks. Yes. And it gets yeah. so much easier when you take yourself out of the situation. It's so natural to be distracted by situational specifics. Yeah. But you want to go, go back to the tree. If you leave situational specifics that he said, she said, they did, they didn't. And think about emotional energy. You will unlock next level amounts of leadership power in your life. Yeah, I completely agree. And as I reflect back, I think I can honestly say the most growth I've had was during the more difficult times of, of trying to learn something new or address something that was very uncomfortable that I needed to overcome. And I think that's where I can honestly say I probably had the most growth in my career, especially as a, as a leader, for sure. I mean, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense. You know, the happy times are wonderful right. and, and we need them. You know, I, I think I mentioned like I'm a mother and obviously it was Mother's Day yesterday. And I was reflecting on motherhood, you know, and again, I think parenthood is the strongest leadership on the planet. It's like the happy days drive themselves. Like when the baby's just adorable and everybody's listening and the kids are playing, it's like, they're wonderful. And we need them too. like the universe talks to us in twos, Uh, but the days that make me grow are the days to your point that like it put me in my pain. Mm-hmm. And again, if we go to the physical analog, like no one has ever gotten stronger being like, I'm just going to sit on this couch. What I'm really going to do today is I'm going to sleep in. Now, does the body need to rest hundred percent? Right. And I think that's why like the body, the brain, the spirit, like it needs joy. It needs easy days. You're not always driving and expanding and getting more powerful, yeah. but growth that, you know, that's why they call it growing pains. Yeah. No one's ever about <laughs> growing pleasure. Right. Yeah. Again. 
Very simple. And yet sometimes we make it much more complicated than what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I so think true. so. Well, Dr. Julia, uh, I could spend like hours just talking to you. I mean, this has been a great discussion. And I think a lot of what you talked about will bring tremendous value to my listeners out there. And and you mentioned it before, but I, I, I think it's important to highlight you are working on a book with, with Harvard Business, and that is scheduled to come out later this fall. Is that right? It's, our, it's scheduled to come out later this year. So the publisher will control the release date, but the book is on the neuroscience of leading in painful times and really focuses on this idea of leadership as an energy. So I think, you know, so often we think about leadership as our doing. Yeah. These targets, these goals, getting these people, having these deliverables. And of course, that's incredibly necessary. But I think those of us who are leaders know that it's so much more than our doing. There's an essence to our leadership. And I think when we really think about the the energy of our leadership, we're able to harness so much more power to really build the life and the legacy that we want. So if you're interested in the brain and and the brain, so this isn't metaphysical, the, the brain is quite literally an electrical machine. So how to work with the energetics of emotion, I think is kind of this really exciting dimension of leadership. Well, I think we're going to just have to have you back. This is a perfect setup. We're just going to have to have you back when the book gets released so you can talk about it because I think that's a great topic as well. I really appreciate that. I would be delighted to come back. Thanks again for coming on. And and we'll put your contact information in, in the show notes. That way, if anybody wants to reach out to you and research some of your information. We will make sure we post that. Yep. And I'm on all the social media channels. So you can just find me there. That's the easy way to connect. Great. Thanks again. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from